0: you're listening to a sermon podcast from redemption hill church recorded at one of our worship services before jacob comes to preach to us today um, let me just do the scripture reading for us taken from 1 samuel chapter 14 verses 1 to 27 1 samuel chapter 14 verses 1 to 27 one day jonathan the son of saul said to the young man who carried his armor come Let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Jibbeah in the pomegranate cave at Migran. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an effort. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes and the name of the other, Senna. The one crag rose on the north in front of Mishmash and the other on the south in front of Jeba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armour, Come! Let us go over to the garrison of those uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armour-bearer said to him, Through all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, come up after me. For the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor-bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made, killed about twenty men within, as it were half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at the time with the people of Israel. Now, while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was a very great confusion. Now, the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp... Even they also turned to be with the Israelites, who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond beth Evan. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of his stuff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright. These are the true words of the living God.
1: Thank you for the long reading. It's a long chapter. Uh, what Rachel read was just half the chapter. But I'm going to preach through the whole thing. So uh, you need to pray for me for clarity. And simplicity, just get to the point. Um, Let's pray together. Father, we pray for you to uh, help this uh, weak preacher here to uh, deliver this word with uh, clarity. Uh, We ask for your help. And not just um, that we may understand this text, but that we may see Jesus. We may see Jesus with clarity and he may move our hearts to worship you and to trust in you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. God raises the humble, uh, he opposes the proud. Uh, We see this pattern again and again in the book of uh, 1 Samuel, and today uh, we see this pattern again. Uh, The contrast is between two main characters. Uh, In this uh, story, we have uh, Jonathan, and we have his father, Saul. Uh, We have young Jonathan, humble, dependent on God, full of uh, zeal, Childlike faith, courage, and boldness. Seemed like a really secure young man. He was introduced in the previous chapter as the one who brought victory. That was how he was introduced. And many of you might uh, know Jonathan, if you've been know, a Christian for a while, and often he's being uh, remembered as a man who is lawyer to King David, a faithful friend. On the other hand, we have King Saul, insecure, prideful, erratic, some of his behaviours here are like, you know, borderline craziness, uh, like people, it's really hard to read why did he do that and, and why did he not do that, um, what was this for? Uh, we'll, we'll go through that a little bit on, later on. So we see a man with courageous faith in God and another man who seemed to be very presumptuous, using uh, religious activities uh, perhaps to mask his own insecurity. I came to faith uh, in my 20s, so I actually uh, had a fair share of my life just sitting in church services, uh, attending uh, Christians events, even the church camp as a non-Christian. And uh, you know when a non-Christian is sitting in, in, among Christians, uh, often they are the ones who, who can pick up things that could be weird. Because <laughs> <laughs> Christians, we are very used to certain assumptions, certain way of doing things. It takes often an outsider to point out, like, hey, actually that, that seems a little bit uh, odd uh, and strange. Now, to, to be fair, I, I think the scriptures, the Bible, does tell believers that when the world looks at us, we're going to appear really odd and strange to them, simply because we love Jesus and we walk according to his way. Um, but there is a kind of oddness that is biblical that is founded and rooted in the Scripture, and there's a kind of oddness that is um, way out of the world and out of the Bible. Uh, there is a kind of oddness that is presumptuous, that is actually not rooted in the clarity of faith in who God is. Now, Jonathan's faith is courageous and bold. Saul's faith, on the other hand, is presumptuous and is rooted in insecurity. So. Here's what I'm going to do. The way I'm going to um, break down this uh, chapter for us is uh, we're just going to look at three person. We're going to look at Jonathan, we're going to look at Saul, and finally we will look at Jesus. So that's my plan of covering this. Uh, I'm not going to cover everything. There are 50 over verses, um, but I'm going to pick some key ideas as we do the contrast of the two main characters uh, in this text. Some context, uh, the chapter before, they were in a time of war. So this was not during a time of peace. And it wasn't just war. It was, um, they were completely outnumbered. The people of God, they were outnumbered. Um, Chapter 13, verse 15, they were left with 600 men. And then uh, the next, uh, in the same chapter, you see that there were 30,000 people against them. 6,000 horsemen and troops. And uh, there were like, uh, you know, even mentioning towards the end of chapter 13, that even when the Israelites needed to sharpen their farming tools, they had to go to the Philistines for help. Uh, Because the Philistines had monopoly over all the blacksmiths. So this is like a a complete uh, hopeless, complete hopeless situation where there's no way, humanly speaking, that they could win this battle. This was a desperate situation. And the only way that the Israelites could win was for God to deliver a divine intervention. So in this chapter, uh, the spotlight is on Jonathan. Jonathan, the firstborn of Saul. Now, the previous chapter, there was also a minor details that spoke out. there were only two swords available. And uh, the two persons who held the swords was Saul and Jonathan. Uh, so it's, it's not just practically that these were the only two men who had the weapons to fight. But I think in a deeper way, What the Bible is trying to portray is it is now down to two men, their choices, their response of faith. And chapter 14 begins with one day. One day, Jonathan, isn't this a very common way of uh, starting a story? What are you expecting right now when you read a story that begins with one day and then we have uh, the main character. Now you are preparing yourself for an epic, adventurous story, right? Uh, and, and this story is so fascinating because, um, I mean, I, I don't mean to spoil it for you. you, you have heard the scripture reading, right? He's going to deliver to Israel this victory that is against all odds. Now, the, the reason why um, this story is so epic is because there is a divine turnaround of a situation that seemed quite hopeless. And on, on this one day, it was a day that, they were quite used to some kind of um, homelessness. They look at their numbers, they look at their enemies, they are constantly feeling a deep sense of discouragement. And one day, Jonathan decided to do something. Now, I point this out because uh, this is the kind of day that you and I will do whatever we can to avoid it. Right? We're going to use our money and resources and strengths and abilities and good planning to prevent such a day from ever happening. Uh, in fact, um, if you are brought up in the Singapore system, leaders are in place to prevent these kind of days from ever happening. We, rely, we can rely on our reserve, on our savings, uh, everything that we, we have to prevent such a day from happening. Now, scriptures often tell us that it is exactly in situations and contexts like this that God's light shines through, shine through very ordinary man to demonstrate that while there are many things in life uh, that are beyond our control, we have a God who is faithful. Um, We love our buffer, we love our resources, we love our reserve, and often we run away from God and depend on all these things. Um, And I'm I'm just really glad that in this church, we often turn to God in confession, in repentance. Repenting, even our dependence on things that are apart from Him. So one day, this story begins one day, and this is what Jonathan said. He said to his armor-bearer, come, let us go over to the other side. He was forward-looking, he was hopeful, he was action-oriented and he wasn't assuming anything at this point. He was just saying, let's go out there to take a look. I know things seem hopeless here but no point continuing to wait here passively. Let's wait actively. Let's go out there to take a look on the other side. Now up to this point, this is still in verse 1, this is no Crazy triumphalistic um, sentiment to say that hey, if we just go there, I'm pretty sure that God will do this and that and that. We're going to claim these promises, He's going to do this and that for us. No, no, He was careful, He was taking a step at the time, He was not being presumptuous. Jonathan had no idea at this point, He was just allowing God to lead him to the next step. And His faith brings him to a place where He's taking one step forward and His eyes are looking, discerning. He knows who God is, He knows God can bring them victory. But he's figuring out how God will do that through him. So he take that step, hopeful, expectant, but non crazy. But he did not tell his father Saul. And Saul was um, hiding in a cave. There were about 600 men with him. Uh, verse 2. Uh, we do not know why he did not tell Saul, his father, and his king. The narrator doesn't describe to us the reason, but neither um, was he portrayed in a sinful way. We just seem to see. In the first uh, couple of verses that Saul was passively waiting, hiding somewhere, passively doing nothing, whereas Jonathan was waiting on God actively, expecting, trusting that God uh, is about to do something and he's moving out to the other side so that he can have a better view of what God could possibly be doing. That was what Jonathan was doing. He was waiting on God actively. Now, we are also told that there were 600 men. And later on, um, we realised that no one knows that they were gone. In fact, later on, they had to do a roll call to find out who was missing. Now, this means that Jonathan's courageous faith, while it's hopeful, expectant, action-oriented, he wasn't trying to be loud or attention-seeking. He is... is, um, not using this to score, to set himself apart. He's not going to trumpet how bold and radical his faith is. He doesn't compare, hey, you guys are waiting, waiting so passively. I'm going to lead the charge. Uh, I'm going to be the one to show you how it's being done. No, he's just quiet, expectant, trusting God to do great things, but in a very watchful, discerning, careful way. Not, not, notice we often like to talk about bold, courageous faith as like you, know, you have to take risks in such a way that you, know, you completely throw away all kinds of caution, and that is bold, radical faith. No, Jonathan's faith is bold, but he's careful. Do you see that the two can coexist? Being careful, discerning, and bold, and courageous at the same time. And here's what God uh, did in verse 4. So Jonathan went to this place. He wasn't even there at the Philistine garrison. He was just on his way. And then verse 4 tells us that within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the other side, there was two rocks, two sharp rocks on either side. And there was a narrow pass in between those two sharp rocks. Now he hasn't reached his destination yet, but he saw this strategic position. Two narrow rocks, two sharp rocks uh, on both sides of this narrow path. Now, for him, I think he's trained in uh, military warfare, this is a strategic place because if you have a smaller troops taking on a bigger army and you choose to fight in this place, you know what's going to happen? The big army, though they are big in size, as they are coming at you, they have to pass through that. So you get to take on those guys one or two at a time. So which means a smaller army has a better chance of defeating a bigger army in a place and location like this. Now, if Jonathan had never ventured out, he would not have discovered that there was such a place where they could choose to fight this war. Now, courageous faith, yes, it includes um, some form of risk-taking, um, but I want us to see that this courageous faith also involves intelligence, right? He, he's applying strategy, he's applying his mind. He's not like going to this realm that is completely out of the world, where he's trusting God in a way that he's abandoning his intelligence. No, he's applying his intelligence. His feet are firmly rooted on the ground. He takes one step, at the time. Now, this epic battle is won because of God's divine intervention, but also because of Jonathan's strategic thinking. So, good planning, good faithful application of strategy is, is, uh, is, is not um, opposed to faith, courageous faith in who God is. So, picture Jonathan combining strategy, discernment calculating race, and then adding to that his theology, his view of who God is. Verse 6, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. I just want to highlight that when, jo- when the Bible describes, when Jonathan used the these are the uncircumcised. This is not a racist comment. <laughs> this is a theological comment. He's, he's remembering the covenant of God. God has set apart a people We are His people. We are the circumcised, His people. He has given us His promises and they are outside of God's covenant promises. So it's us against them and God is for us. So He's clear. This is who we are because this is who God is. God has made a covenant with us. We are the circumcised, they are the uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. So his focus is on who God is, his covenant. And this is the God who is able to save. This is a God who is big and huge and amazing and he's going to deliver them. He knows, he knows very clearly. Jonathan had a plan. He's applying intelligent discernment. He he was um, careful, but he wasn't playing safe. He he took risks. While he wasn't playing safe, he wasn't playing God. But he had a good understanding of God. Now, I know I'm talking about a lot of things. I just really want us to see how courageous faith is not opposed to good application of intelligence and as well as theology. But look at the word may. Underline that word, that it may be that the Lord will work for us, even up to this point. Jonathan is still not assuming anything. He's still taking that step, another step that takes him closer to see things with greater clarity. Now this is how courageous faith looks like, guys. I don't want us to just assume that we can apply faith in a simplistic way, we can claim God's promises, avoid all the hardship, avoid all the planning, avoid all the wrestling and struggling, and somehow he will bring us to the other side with no efforts from us at all. Can you see the level of intentionality and care that, that Jonathan put into this whole process? He wasn't playing God. And he was taking it step by step. And yet at the same time, he knew that God is big. Now church, uh, is this the way we apply our faith? God is big. He can deliver us. There is no situation or circumstances that that can hinder us from fulfilling God's um, promises and purposes in our life. We can look to Him. We don't have to look to ourselves, our abilities, our resources. We can look to Him for His divine intervention. And meanwhile, let's continue to take every faithful step of faith humanly possible. Every faithful step of faith with wisdom and care and discernment and trust that um, through mundane, ordinary means God can deliver us. Through miraculous intervention, God can deliver us. And if you want to step up in faith, encourage in this way, you actually need a team. You know that the Bible has such a huge emphasis on being part of a people. We are not called to be um, that elite one-person soldier, um, that rainbow or whatever. Um, that's like, is it a really old reference? I'm so sorry. I should update my movie <laughs> reference. Um, now we are we are called to be part of a people as we are sent out into the world for spiritual battles. And this is this is where the emphasis, the the, the spotlight. Um, earlier we were introduced to his armor bearer, but this guy is going to play a huge part in this victory. So Jonathan turned to his armor bearer. And, um, uh, sorry, let me just backtrack a little bit. So this is the the way the armor-bearer was uh, introduced um, to to us in this story. He said to Jonathan in verse 7, Do all that is in your heart. Do all that as you please. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. So if you want to go out and take bold, courageous move for the Lord. You need friends like that. Um, the armour bearer, I think, uh, just, just by the, the, the words, um, that's his job description. He's supposed to bear the armour of his commander. He's supposed to be like some kind of like a sidekick, so someone who is there to serve uh, his, his, his boss in the battlefield. And this unnamed armour bearer is the unsung hero. But let's put ourselves in the shoes for a moment. How much it takes for, for this guy to be out there. Uh, he was following Jonathan around at the risk of his... life, right? If this goes wrong, it's going to cost him his life. And yet he was faithful and committed and loyal and supportive. How many of us have friends that we can turn to in moments that we are, as we are taking courageous steps for the Lord? We can turn to them and receive such words. I am with you in heart, in soul. The New Testament we see men like Barnabas supporting Paul and the ministry of the church, and in the Old Testament we see unnamed armour bearers like this guy who play a crucial role in this victory. Now Jonathan led clearly and boldly, but he was humble. Courageous faith involved turning to godly people for their encouragement, for their counsel, for their prayer. Now, if you, uh, if, if you and I really are serious about taking courageous, bold move for the Lord, for the things that He will do in our life, through our church, we need teammates who can come around us, put their arms around us and say, I'm with you, especially during moments when we are discouraged and doubtful, we need that assurance. And for the rest of this episode, they proceeded carefully, I'm going to summarize a bit of those, the, the story for us, uh, they asked God to confirm with a sign, God confirmed with a sign, they followed And one thing led to another, um, and uh, they had a victory. But before I get to the victory too quickly, just another point to highlight, a a point that I made earlier. Verse 13, Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, his armour-bearer after him. Now, notice that the Bible, maybe let me just put it this way, the Bible doesn't waste words. But here the focus is his hands and his feet. And as I was looking at this verse, it just struck me that courageous. Faith involved getting your hands dirty. It involved hard work. It wasn't like God granted that victory by zapping the enemies and they all fell dead. They were sent to Jonathan and the armour bearer and the fight was hard and tedious. And eventually, two men against 20 people, they won. Now how does this story inspire you? Now, Some of us are in a situation where we feel hopeless that one-day situation that I mentioned earlier, maybe you are in that right now, you, you look at the, the things that are surrounding you, you look at the place that you want to be, If it, it feels impossible. It feels like those barriers, those hurdles, those challenges are beyond what you can overcome. I pray that today, as you listen to this word, that, that there is a sense of courage that is filling you right now, that comes from God. And God saying to you, it's not about how much resources, how much strength you have, It's about me and if I can come through for Jonathan I can come through for you why not take the next step of faith towards me take the next step of faith and I will show you what the next step will be if you are in doubts turn around look out for teammates who love Jesus whom you can trust in for their counsel and encouragement men and women who can come around you and say I am with you I am with you in my heart and my soul I'm praying for you. I'm supporting you. Now, we all need that. We all need that. That is how courageous faith look like. Let me shift the spotlight. So we are Jonathan. Now let's look at. So, presumption. Um, that is the word that I will use to describe this guy. I'm contrasting um, courage and presumption. And often presumption can smell like courage, right? It's like taking risks, going out there, um, you know, doing things that seems bold and radical. But the difference is uh, true biblical courage is rooted in reality, it's rooted in who God is, it's rooted in truth. Presumption is rooted in some kind of false idea about God, about reality, and often it's rooted in our deep insecurity. And the rest of the chapter describes erratic behaviour from King Saul that are really hard to understand, really. And whereas King Saul's behaviour are really hard to understand, Jonathan's behaviour seems really simple. He just takes one step at a time, trusting God, trusting God. When he needs help, when he needs he turned around and asks someone for help. And then God caught him to fight, they, they followed and the victory was granted. It felt very simple and straightforward that way. Now, the rest of the chapter is just really hard to read because it's very hard to re- understand why Saul would behave in this way. Um, hyper-spiritual at times, unnecessary at times, and just confusing um, for the rest of the chapter. Verse 16, the watchman of Saul... Back in the camp, they were looking and the multitude of the Philistines was dispersing here and there. And Saul said to the people who were with him, come and see who has gone from us. Don't you find it strange? You're in a situation where you're fighting a war and then they were like, wow, on the other side, the enemy seems to be killing each other and they are dying. <laughs> what do you do at this point of time? Do a roll call and find out who's missing, who is actually doing something on the other side. Let's find out who would do something like that. There's no explanation here. But looking at Saul's character, he's probably wondering who is doing something heroic over at the other side, who could take the credits. (laughs) That could be one way that he's looking at the situation. In any case, it seems odd that his immediate response was to do a roll call. And then when they counted, they found that it was Jonathan, an armour bearer. So Saul said, bring out the ark, bring out the ark. And then um, uh, he was talking to the priest. And the, the situation over there at the Philistine camp continued more and more and Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hands." Can you see how erratic this is? Let's take out the ark. And we're like, why? Why do you need to take out the ark right, right now at this point? It seems like right now it's quite obvious, right? Do you still need to consult? If it seems like God is on the move, He's doing something. The thing that we probably need to do right now is to trust God and go out there and join in the battle because God is clearly delivering up for us a victory. So, hyper-spiritual saw, brought out the ark. And he was, this, he was having this uh, intense, deep, uh, spiritual conversation with the priest. And then when he saw that the, the situation seems to intensify, he said, we draw your hand. So this was like a sudden flip-flop, erratic, not predictable at all. What was going on with this man's life? Now, the narrator doesn't explain a lot, but we can infer that Uh, there's some kind of deep insecurity. Something about this man is not quite right. The Bible is hinting that there are deep cracks in this man's life. Remember in a few chapters ago, why was he appointed? Because he looked like a king, right? He looked like someone who is handsome, good-looking, tall, and strong, except that he is highly insecure as a person and lacking in character. Anyway, in verse 20, as he uh, told the priest to um, withdraw his hand, Verse 20, Saul and all the people, they finally got it. They joined the battle. A little bit too late, but nevertheless, they they joined the battle. And verse 23, so the Lord saved Israel that day. Verse 23, the Lord saved Israel that day. King Saul hesitated before trusting God to go out, but God granted them a victory anyway. Based on the faith of Jonathan and his armor bearers and based on God's grace. Even in Saul's faithlessness as a king, things still happened. Victory was still granted. Friends, this is the God of grace. Put yourself in the shoes of one of the 600 men who was just waiting in this hopeless situation. And your experience probably will be like, well, we we don't understand how we want the better. But somehow God won it for us. This is a story of grace and God's divine intervention, his faithfulness. Now, I often hear comments um, from folks here and there, now and then, uh, you know, pitching God that way. The God of the Old Testament is a, a God of law. You know, if you do this, then I'll do this. If you don't do this, then I will do that, you know. And then the, the God of the New Testament is a God of grace, uh, where uh, Jesus seems to be very gracious. Uh, he forgive our sins. He went to the cross for us. No, 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 no. I think that is a false dichotomy. Just to, just to repeat that, I'm sure this idea has been preached before over our pulpit quite a number of times. But the God of the Bible in both the Old and the New Testament is a God of faithfulness and grace. And grace to the least deserving. Again and again and again. We see the idea in the Old Testament. In fact, I can find even more stories in the Old Testament to prove that point, to be honest, than, than if you want to just compare the quantity. There are so many stories in the Old Testament that tell us that God is a God of grace. That is the kind of God that we have. Now, it would be a really, really nice conclusion, a, a nice end to this story if we just end at this verse, the Lord saved the day, right? And then we can live happily ever after, and clap, have a benediction, and we can leave the, the, the place feeling happy that God saved the day. Except that things continue and so gets weirder and weirder. <laughs> now, the men of Israel, they were hard-pressed after fighting, so Saul decided to come up with this strange idea of laying an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eat food until it's evening, and I'm avenged on my enemies. Now, do you know how crucial this time was? You just had a decisive victory. The Philistines, they were running away. Their backs were facing you. They were low, low on morale. They had no idea how to fight this anymore. They had given up hopes. They knew that they were the, the loser and you are the victors. You know what uh, a normal commanders would do? Take this time to pursue the enemy and destroy them as much as you can because you don't want them to go back and regroup and come back at you again, right? That is the way to go. Saul decided that it was appropriate at that time to call for a national fast for all his battalion of soldiers while they were hungry and tired. Let's do a fast right now, okay? This is very, very weird (laughs) and odd. And the men who were under his leadership, they really, really suffered because they were so, so, so hungry. Later on, um, when they receive the spoils of the battle, they end up breaking uh, God's command by eating blood because they were so hungry. And here in this text, what happened later on? Jonathan, Jonathan um, who did not know of his father um, laying this oath before the people, he actually consumed something, honey, just a little bit. His eyes became bright, but... In this instance, he committed some kind of sin because of the curse pronounced by King Saul due to the oath that he made. Now, what motivates King Saul in making an oath like that? We have, we have no idea, but, but there's a clue. Um, the, the, you can go to the previous slide. Remember the line, the, 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 I am avenged of my enemies. What is he motivated by? God's glory? God's purpose? No, taking revenge. This is a guy who is motivated By revenge. Those guys, they inflicted pain on me. I will not rest until I inflict pain on them to the fullest. That was what motivated him and going, uh, calling a fast for. This is really odd, right? (laughs) For a king to behave this way. Um, Anyway, um, there's too many dramas here in the rest of these chapters, too little time for us. I will be very selective about what to go through. Uh, I can summarize for you what happened after this. He had um, his other spiritual, uh, hyper special moments of uh, making another oath, uh, and then uh, the, the, he casted Lot uh, because uh, you know, he, he knew that there was someone in the camp that, that broke the command, and then finally it was revealed that it was uh, his son, Jonathan, and they went back and forth. Finally, the people ransomed Jonathan and spared him from a certain death, even though King Saul was very ready to let his son die for a sin that he unintentionally committed, by the way, and due to a you know, foolish oath that he, he made. Um, no sense of responsibility, throwing his son under the bus. The people finally redeemed Jonathan, and the rest of the chapter was like this um, glowing resume uh, of uh, King Saul um, and how um, the rest of his rules was like di- during that time. In, in a slightly positive way, but I'll go to that later. Anyway, um, how, my main takeaway for us is that what we see here is a contrast on two different types of leadership. And I'm talking about leadership because both Saul and Jonathan, they were, called, they were called by God to lead the people. And these two types of leadership, one is courageous. And the courageous leadership that we see from Jonathan, as I mentioned earlier, is simple. Simple to follow because Jonathan was simple-hearted. His heart was simple. I'm not talking about being simple-minded. Let's not get that wrong, okay? His heart is simple, full of faith, full of zeal, childlike faith to the Lord and his humble, he consulted people, he consulted his armour. he was dependent on, on a friend, uh, and he takes step carefully, trusting in God to provide. And then we see a presumptuous form of leadership here that is heavy-handed and smells of insecurity. King Saul's insecurity leads to perplexing behaviour. We don't need to analyse him too much. The narrator doesn't seem to tell us all the reasons it just paints him in a really bad light. And this is one of the chapters where uh, it be, it's becoming clearer and clearer that God is slowly, slowly moving on from Saul and moving to another king. So here we are seeing glimpses and shadows of that. Presumptuous leadership is, feels erratic and heavy-handed because often the leaders who are presumptuous and insecure, they swing from extreme to extreme, right? Flip-flop. And then when they swing from extreme to extreme, heavy-handed measurements, measures and uh, corrections has to be applied. On uh, one part, uh, he was praying, bringing out the ark. On the other spectrum, once he's swing to the other side, he's calling down curse upon his own people for not observing a fast that he caught for no reasons. And then he uh, applied dramatic, hyper spiritual way of like, you know, giving an oath, promising this and that. Where the Bible simply says that let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Now, men of integrity, leaders of integrity, they just simply keep their words. They don't have to do all these um, hyper spiritual acts to demonstrate how good or spiritual they are. Now, presumptuous leadership seems to be rooted in some kind of vain insecurity, and this is what we see from Saul. Now, how is it like to serve under a man like Saul? I imagine it to be very oppressive crushing, to be serving under an insecure, heavy-handed leader. How is it like to serve under a man like Jonathan, the armor Um, I think he seemed to have quite a bit of fun, right? (laughs) It was risky, it was hard work, but imagine if he's here and we interview him about, it's going to be one of his most epic adventure stories of his life. They were there, and God did this, and they were up front there, seeing God at work in this way and that way. It was hard work, but it was fun, it was rewarding. was inspiring. Now, that is the difference when you serve under different kinds of leaders, leadership. In my time um, as a pastor here in RAC, I met many um, who shared with me stories of their life, how uh, you know, they were um, part of environment that um, often they were told just how to behave, but never got to the heart of it. Uh, and um, lots of wounded, jaded, tired Christians. We just walk around, um, not knowing uh, what's their life purpose, what God is going to do next. And then they came to this place, this humble place that, you know, a lot of us may not even know what, what we are doing. We're just trusting God as we preach the gospel every week. And they find this place to be a place of healing for them. And I'm really, really thankful. I wrote down in my notes just some, some names of folks, uh, which I'm not going to read out, but I put their names here in my notes. Because I, I want to remember seasons of walking with people who are very broken, oppressed, by heavy-handed spiritual leaders and its effects on them. Normally, it takes a long, long time for them to heal. It takes a long, long time for them to trust again. Normally, when a pastor like maybe myself or A going up to them, introduce ourselves, Pastor so-and-so, uh, I-, I can almost sense the kind of like guardedness. Oh, pastor is talking to me. Is he getting me to serve? Are they trying to get me to give more money? Uh, what-, what is this about? Um, and-, and I remember... Um, uh, a few occasions when, you know, just randomly email someone, hey, uh, you're on the membership list, shall we meet for coffee next week? And the reply is, why? What do you want to meet me? What's your, uh, what, 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 what are things that I need to prepare for the meeting? What's the agenda, right? And then the agenda is, I just want to get to know you. <laughs> I often find it hard to believe. Now, I'm not here to boast about how great RAC is. Don't get me wrong. Please don't get me wrong. If I come off that way, I apologize. What I'm trying to say is, God is doing something very precious here that we need to guard. This has been a place where many people have experienced healing, healing, and they have been nursed back into health, and after one or two years of, you know, just being cared for, now they are serving, and they are flourishing. I'm very, very thankful for that. Now, courageous leadership means talking about how we need to cut that, calling out these things clearly and honestly, and saying that guys especially, guys and girls, especially if you are members of RAC, can I just gently... But truthfully and firmly say this to you that you have a part to play in RAC in guarding what is so precious to us. In your leading, in your serving, do so humbly towards the Lord, to the Lord and to His people. Don't be insecure, <laughs> be rested in His love. Which brings me to my last point how can we be courageous and secure? Because if my message at the end is uh, be like Jonathan. Be strong, be courageous, don't be like sore, don't be insecure, don't be fearful, don't be like a jerk. No, 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 that, that, that would still be moralistic, right? It would still be like, let's just do things in our own efforts and strength. But before I get to the how, let me just um, do a brief reflection on Jonathan, this character. I was really fascinated as I'm preparing for this sermon, reading about the life of Jonathan and going to the you know, future chapters uh, about what will be revealed about him, um, how his life will pan out. Uh, Just what a beautiful character Jonathan is, a man of faith, a man of humility, a man of courage and love and and loyalty, and also a faithful son to his king, his imperfect father, his horrible father, in fact. And uh, he, he was a faithful friend to David. Samuel later will pronounce that David will be the next king, and Saul will lose his kingship because David will be the next king. But no one ever put their shoes into, in, in, into, Jonathan's, into Jonathan's shoes. Because remember, this is the crown prince. This is the firstborn son of Saul. If anything, he's the next in line to become king. But if you read the book of 1 seven, you will not find any trace of insecurity about, from, from Jonathan, arguing with David, no, I should be king instead. No, you, you, this is odd. Let's discern further. I don't think that is true. No, no, no. Once he knew that God has called David to be king, he was committed to David as a lawyer friend. But he did not therefore depart from Saul in a clean way because he was a child, a son who seek to honour his father. And this was how he died, fulfilling both obligations as a friend, as a son. I'm not going to give away too much detail. You can read about his life later on. This was how he died, fulfilling both obligations faithfully to the two men. In verse 43, Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey just with the tip of the stuff that was in my hand. Just a little bit. By the way, I didn't know that you called for that foolish oath. I have no idea that you, you did that. And guess what? Nevertheless, I broke the command and the punishment was death. So here I am. I will die. Just take my life. What kind of man would do that? To confess his sin even though it's unintentional, even though it's minor, but often that's not how we respond, right? Ah, but it's too minor, ah, but I don't know. So if I don't know, then it's not counted as sin. Ah, please don't tell me too much so that I can you know, be ignorant about the many requirements in the scriptures. <laughs> because if I know now, I feel the obligation to fulfill, right? But Jonathan here, he did something that he wasn't aware of and he was prepared to die for it for the sake of righteousness. What a man of integrity. I was so struck by this character and just how undercovered his story is in the Bible. He's just known as David's sidekick. But this is a man of integrity and godly character. Now what would a father do when you see your son behaving so righteously? What would, you do? What would a good father do? I don't know what you would do, but I'll tell you what Saul would do, okay? In the next verse, we are told that once Jonathan confessed his sin and said, here I am, I will die, even though it's a minor sin and I didn't know. Um, he said, yes, you will surely die. That was his response. He was prepared to kill him. It's very, very odd. It's very, very odd. If I'm put in that position where I need to execute my son, it would be like, oh, it would be so, so, so hard. It's like such pain to have to go through that. But there's no sense of pain here. He was ready to throw his son under the bus at any time. Look at how self, what's the self-obsessed, even narcissistic, this, this man is. It's all about him and him and him. There's no ability to empathize. There's no ability to care and to genuinely love even your own son. I cannot imagine how dysfunctional Saul was as a father. He was so insecure and how hard it was for Jonathan to grow up in the household. Now, I will not speculate. But anyway, a few hundred years later, after this episode, uh, by the way, the story ended with uh, the people redeeming um, Jonathan and save his life. A few hundred years later, another father would have to make a decision to put his own son to death. His most precious, beloved, only son. And it wasn't because his son disobeyed or broke any oath or commandment. It was because you and I broke God's commands. It wasn't because his son broke any law. It was because you and I are the lawbreaker. Jonathan broke a command because he didn't know you and I are worse. We often break commands that we know, right? Now, the embarrassing thing about regular confession and repenting, the most embarrassing thing for me is that I find myself often repenting of the same sin. And up to a certain point, I'll be like, "Wow, that is like the 674 time I pray this prayer." I share with a friend that I, I fell into this sin. Um, I'm repenting. I mean that I don't learn anything at all? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? And every good Christian who sincerely want to follow God we arrive at this place where our desires are so twisted that we just need to keep repenting. We really need to keep repenting and keep turning to Jesus and depend on Him because we cannot rely on ourselves. We are so twisted and so what? It's not because we don't know, but we delight in doing wrongs. And that's what makes it so difficult. Jesus is completely not like us. The perfect Son of God. We were ransomed because of him. In this story, the people ransomed Jonathan, but Jesus is the one that ransomed all of us, the people. Jonathan bravely entrusted himself to a wicked father. Here I am, I will die. Jesus bravely entrusted his life to the perfect father. Let your will be done, not mine. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Saul sacrificed his own son for his own gains. God sacrifices his son for us. I don't know why you noticed this, in the baptism video just now, someone said, you don't know how precious something is until you know how costly it is. It costs God everything. Because God the Father is not like Saul at all. It pains him. Now, Often when we look at the cross, we see the picture of God the Son, Jesus being crucified. I want us to know that in that perfect Trinitarian relationship, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, 3% Three percent is the perfect love and fellowship within the Godhead, that He caused God, the Father everything, to send his son to the cross, but because of love, because of you and I, God did that. Now this is how you and I grow to become more secure and bold and courageous, as that love from God, from God the Father, comes to us as we see and behold Jesus. That's a picture of this is how precious you are. This is what defines you. Everything in your life can be taken away, but that cannot be taken away. Jesus died for you. Do you know how loved you are? Look at the cross. Do you know how precious you are? Look at the cross. You are not defined by your career. You are not defined by your boss. You are not defined by your marital status. You are not defined by how many kids you have. You are defined by the precious, precious love that comes from the Father. It is in, in, in us going back to that love again and again, defining us, giving us a deep sense of security and assuredness, that is how we grow in boldness, in courage, in faith, in security. Nothing else can help us to grow in our security. Everything is like sand. The storms come, your house that is built on sand will eventually fall apart. Come back to the Father's love. Some of us need to hear that today. The rest of the chapters, it's actually quite scary, the rest of the chapters, because tells us that even though Saul is so insecure, even though things seem to be so, so dysfunctional in his life, there is still success on the outside. There is still a a success that we see here, accomplishments now. Uh, Here's the thing that struck me, insecurity can actually produce success, right? And many of us may be familiar with that. The reason why you are so successful today is because you have been driven by a sense of unworthiness all your life. You have been insecure all your life. That's why you need to achieve this to cover up for your shame and your unworthiness. I think today, um, God could be challenging, encouraging some of us to return again to the Father's love. And that is where we receive real security and assurance. And through that love from God, derive true courage. With that, let me pray for us and ask God to help us. Father, we pray, we pray for Love, love that comes from you that fills all our hearts, love that comes from you that will grant us deep security and courage, that in the midst of many, many things that are very, very challenging in this life, I what Ae prayed earlier in the prayer, some of us are going through very tough and dark seasons, that we will see the light of your love shining the next step for us to trust in you and to take the next step forward and the next step forward and we can be secure not because we know what is ahead of us we don't know what is ahead of us but we can be secure and at peace and bold and courageous because we know that you, you hold fast to us in your love and your grace. So help us to experience that, help us to remember that, help us to apply that deeply into our life so that everything that we know, our theology, our knowledge of who you are can be transformed into real fruits in our life. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
0: You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at
1: www.rhc.org.sg.